Welcome, my friends, to another episode of Is That Really Legal? with Eric Rubin. Today, you're going to hear me interview Liz McCrocklin. Liz started out life in San Diego, a really interesting way, sailed a lot of cool places as a kid, but somehow ended up at Georgetown University thinking that she was going to be in the Foreign Service uh, and discovered she had a completely different trajectory ahead of her. Uh, She did end up going to the London School of Economics, too. Uh, She got involved in public relations work, uh, but right now she's been working, doing fundraising uh, with education, but she's also a gifted writer and photographer, and she's going to talk about that entire journey. I met her because when she walked into a coffee shop that I was in with my wife, uh, Liz had this old Yashica uh, large format or medium format camera. We'll talk about that in our interview too. And it was just very unusual. I hadn't seen one in a long time. My dad had one. It shot what we call two and a quarter, two and a quarter. And um, I just uh, was brave and asked, hey, uh, what are you doing with that? And we got into a conversation I learned about her and you know that's how you discover that there's a lot of amazing people walking amongst us and uh, you're going to meet her and find out that she's amazing. If you have questions about the show, Liz or me, go to www.isthatreallylegal.com. You can leave me a message there. Please subscribe, rate the show, share it with your friends. But right now, sit back, relax and enjoy this conversation with Liz McCrocklin. Liz McCrocklin, welcome to Is That Really Legal? with Eric Rubin. It is great to have you here. Thanks so much for having me. And as I'll probably say in the intro, I have not known you but for five minutes, and we met uh, having breakfast next to each other in one of our favorite places in Dumbo. But I, well, we met because we are both interesting, curious, and friendly people. And, and it worked out great. You know, I had my wife next to me. You were there with some friends. And you put down a camera that I recognized as not new technology. <laughs> uh, and I knew it because my father was into photography. And we ended up talking. And you were very generous by saying, here, take a look. And for people who don't know, you know, people's equipment, especially, dare I call it vintage, it can be expensive. It can be fragile. And people can rightly feel, you know, proprietary about it and nervous about letting strangers touch it whom either, you know, you don't know them from Adam and you don't know if they know how to touch something appropriately. It was just, it was lovely. And I just, um, it it was really a nice interaction. And then we spoke about what we do and I knew I had to have you as a guest. So thank you for being generous with your time today, too. So I'm just going to start off the top like I do with a lot of people. Like, Where did you start? Where are you from? Where did you grow up? Sure. Um, so I, I love when people are interested in my camera. Um, I get a lot of questions about it and I get a lot of Oh, I used to shoot on that, or my father used to shoot on it. Um, so uh, anyone who loves old cameras um, is my friend to start with. Um, I grew up in San Diego, um, sunny Southern California. It was a pretty idyllic childhood. Um, we were often on the water. My parents are big sailors. So a lot of time sailing, a lot of time. I was an only child, so I spent a lot of time with books. So I was a pretty big reader um, from the very beginning, but I did not show any early talent in visual arts. Uh, that definitely came later. So sailing, uh, I also love to sail and have had amazing experiences with amazing people sailing. Do you remember what kind of boat or boats that your parents used to sail? 
Oh, absolutely. Um, my dad <laughs> built, my parents built a 34 foot trimaran um, when I was younger. And we spent two years sailing around Central America. Um, and there's been a whole succession of boats. My father is in his 70s and he still races every weekend during the summer. So um, a lot of time on the water growing up. I, um, much to my friend's great amusement, actually never learned to sail um, because I think when you're a kid and you kind of rebel against whatever you you know, um, so I'm useless on a sailboat, but I do, um, I do enjoy being near the water. Wow. I, I want to do a, I want to get into this a little bit. So for people who don't know, a trimaran is a three hulled ship. Most sailboats just have a single hull. And then there's catamarans that people may have seen, which are faster generally. And they have two hulls and a, a sort of net or what we call a trampoline between the two of them. I don't know the config configuration for a trimaran. My guess is it's fast and it's a little complicated. So I don't know about the rigging of all of it, but I do know that there are people who have, and I mean this in a very nice way, a sickness. And your father has the sailing sickness. If he built his own boat or if they built their own boat, that is a commitment because my guess is they didn't mold fiberglass. They did things using wood. Um, although it could be wrong. Wood and fiberglass, yeah. Okay. It took 10 years to build the boat, so it was definitely a commitment. Um, and But we did not go very fast. This was not a fancy racing trimaran. We we went at about five miles an hour <laughs> around, around Central America, so I, we had a lot of time uh, for, for reading. Oh, wow. I, you know, I, I have several friends who've done the world traveling when they were kids, uh, with the parents and it must have been an amazing experience. I want to, I want to just before I ask you about that, I want to remind you in case you did, or maybe you didn't know right near where I live, which is pretty close to the Brooklyn Bridge, there's Brooklyn Bridge Park. And in the spring and summer, there is a sailing school. There's a, I think they call it the Brooklyn Yacht Club. I could be wrong. My wife and I keep threatening each other to go there. I, I sailed quite a bit, and I would do it as a refresher, plus to just include her. I think that would be a lot of fun to do together. I just want to tell you, if you really do want it nuts and bolts kind of stuff, I think they offer that, and you'll be, well, if that's what you want to do, and that's a little shout-out to them. And if they ever wanted to uh, be a sponsor on my show, I'd appreciate that also. Because um, <laughs> it looks like a great place, and they have really lovely sailboats they look like you know 20 footers tops day sailors um and they go out on the east river of all places um which can be a daunting for some but once you get the hang of it i think it'd be great so so how old were you when your folks said let's go to south america um, eight and nine, so third and fourth grade. Um, and my mother homeschooled me and she would like it known that I came back ahead of my class. Um, so <laughs> any early skills um, attributed to reading and writing, um, she gets credit for my utter inability to do mental math or arithmetic is my own failing. So she just, just want to set. All right, mom, it, mom, you should feel happy that you've been acknowledged. <laughs> um, I'm sure you could have written a book about that experience, but, and we could talk about it for hours, but is there one or two highlights of sailing around South America that even to today, even today, you feel like, oh my God, that was amazing or memorable or horrifying or what? I mean, whatever works for you. I mean, there were so many, but I think um, things that stand out, <laughs> we were going through the Panama Canal and um, we were a very small boat and um, behind us was a destroyer. So a military boat, um, huge destroyer. And we're going through the locks and the way the Panama Canal works is um, there's a series of locks and you sail in and then they close the locks and then they flood the locks. So you um, rise and fall with the water and the water comes in very, very fast um, for a small ship like us and you have line handlers who are kind of dragging the ships through um, and the um, destroyer behind us like one of our line handlers my mom was working with one of the line handlers and got um, the rope snagged and so we are holding up 
this destroyer and all of the sailors on the destroyer in their full dress whites, hundreds of them lining the destroyer, watching us struggle with the lines. And I remember it vividly. And I remember my mom being so embarrassed. And I remember we got it. Um, we finally got it free and started moving again. And everyone started applauding. <laughs> hundreds of sailors on this destroyer behind us started applauding. Um, and it really, really, it was a great experience. It stuck with me as a child. Well, you know, growing up in San Diego, there's that tremendous naval base there. Did you have uh, any interactions with the naval base as a kid? No, but San Diego is a very military town, so it's very important. Yeah. One of my best friends married a Navy SEAL and got married on the beach in Coronado, and planes flew overhead. And for people who don't understand, military planes flying overhead, you know, we have it sometimes in New York, even, you know, July 4th or whatever. But when they fly overhead, like literally like just over your head, it's intense. I don't know if you had a lot of that as a kid where naval jets were flying overhead, stuff like that. Oh, we definitely grew up with the Blue Angels. The Blue Angels are based out of um, San Diego and they're at, they're at all the events and all the, the they fly their um, planes that fly in formation and they're really, really cool to see. So yes, definitely remember that from my childhood. Wow. That's very different from most New Yorkers and uh, yeah, I had, a very, I had a very East Coast experience growing up. You know, I had snow. You did not have snow. Unless you went to Julian, which is where one of my dear friends lives. And that's an hour ride. And this is the thing about California that's so different from New Yorkers. When you live in various parts of California, that's as Southern California as you get because you can, like, drive to Tijuana. Um, but you can – you're an hour – you could go surfing or you could go skiing depending on the day and especially up in julian where they've been known to have serious snowfalls yeah um, uh, definitely went regularly to both tijuana and julian have <laughs> both yep that's great um so you come back uh, a world traveler at the age of nine uh what was there anything that really affected you and made you want to ultimately um go to and you know I, I i found you on linkedin because you know i didn't ask you for a lot of stuff but i didn't ask you for anything i did my own little research but you went to a place that i think of as the antithesis of a west coast college you went to georgetown university uh, and spent four years in Washington, D.C. Very military town also, but a very different vibe than San Diego. And what you studied there is not what I would have expected after meeting you. Can you talk about that a little bit? <laughs> yes. So I think really um, my interest in creativity and particularly in writing um, was really sparked in high school. So I had three just exceptional teachers in high school, two of them in English and one of them in art history. Um, and they definitely cultivated my love of words um, as well as visual arts. And I think they told me very, very early on, and I still have this letter from my high school teacher, um, that I had kind of a gift for simple writing that gets to the heart of things, right? Um, but at the time, I was very focused on academics. Um, writing was really a means for achievement rather than self-expression. And I did what all kids do. Let me go somewhere as different as possible from this, you know, glorious beachfront town where I grew up um, and had headed to Washington, D.C. I think because of my early travel experiences, I was very drawn to the School of Foreign Service. Um, I thought that I wanted to be a diplomat. It took me all of five minutes um, in Georgetown to realize that I was absolutely not cut out to be a diplomat. And really what I wanted to do is write and think and study art. And so I did a major that basically <laughs> was the softest possible major within the School of Foreign Service called Culture and Politics, which basically allowed me to take art history and cultural critique classes and still graduate with a Foreign Service degree. Um, so that's really how I kind of fused my love of, of travel and international relations as well as uh, writing and, and creativity and creating. Yeah. You know, if you had been from a different country, one could even argue you would become what's known as a cultural attache. Um, you know, having traveled a little bit and knowing something of politics from my own studies, there are governments that actually pay large amounts of money to the arts that that have a minister of the arts. So I'm just thinking of France off the top of my head, but, um, and they are probably best known for that. 
And as a result, they have a culture that reflects where they put their money. It's not that complicated, you know. Um, and then if you look at the United States, we have a culture that reflects where we put our money. And I don't want to go down that cul-de-sac, but it's I don't necessarily approve of that. Let's just say that. Um, but um, there aren't real cultural attaches in the U.S. I suppose if you were an ambassador to a country that was particularly arts forward, uh, I don't even know if you'd be an ambassador. Maybe you could be a, uh, some kind of cultural liaison. And of course, in the foreign service, there's lots of people who uh, work in lots of the multilateral letter agencies. And, you know, uh, as a friend I know used to work for one of them, he nicknamed them the Christians in action. Uh, right. I mean, uh, I'm not asking if you were ever involved in any of these agencies. I just know that some of those people from the Foreign Service do go into those agencies. Um, and then they end up as air quotes diplomats. That does not seem to be your vibe. Um, and <laughs> you it was not my vibe. Um, I had several friends who went into the to the agencies. Um, but I think I can. Um, from my experience, the, the French embassies do have the best cultural events around the world. You can always count on a good, um, show or reception at the French embassies. So they definitely, um, invest in enthusiastic spread of their food and culture as they should. Oh, the food is so good. And just as a side note, my wife, Holly, who you met, we, I think we had just come back from Paris when we ran into you. And I just fell in love with Paris. It's so beautiful. The museums are great. The food, even just a cup of coffee and a croissant are so miles above anything that we get here. And we live in Brooklyn and we have some pretty great food here, too. All right. Again, I'm off on a tangent. Shocking. You'll see. Um, so you then end up after your four years in Georgetown, which kind of is its own little world in dc right i mean it's it's beautiful and in some ways it's almost like a little european town wouldn't you say yeah yeah but then you say that's not enough i'm gonna go to europe for sure and you go you that's when you decide to do what mick jagger did and you go to the people don't know this it's a fact london school of economics which is no easy feat right i mean that's a pretty competitive and rigorous school. What what made you want to do that? <laughs> uh, my parents joked at the time that LSE stood for Let's See Europe, um, because I definitely was there on a pass-fail situation. Um, again, I think taking courses that I got there and very quickly realized that some of the brightest economic minds in the world were at LSE, and I was not even nearly on the same wavelength. Um, I just wanted a change, took some interesting courses, and frankly, uh, did a lot of travel. Weekend trips were very cheap from London. Um, I have very fond memories of studying there. I'm not so sure how much studying happened. We only had to do one exam at the end of the year. So really, everyone just crammed for a month to sit the final exams. Um, and there was a lot of very cheap, easy jet flights at the time. So I have I'm very fond memories of of LSE. <laughs> I'm jealous. I, I, law school involved no travel for me. I mean, I lived in, I was in Greenwich Village, but um, it wasn't like getting on a jet and going all over Europe. And that not that the thing about Europe, by the way, that's so amazing, is once you're in Europe, almost anywhere in Europe, really, you can, if you're willing to pack light, um, travel almost anywhere in Europe for a song. Even during expensive places, you can spend under 200 bucks and go pretty much anywhere. Because I've, Holly and I have friends all over Europe, and when we get to Europe, we tend to try to use it as a launching point. So if we're in Hamburg, well, then let's go to Florence. Or, you know, we have relatives in Florence, we're there, well, let's go to Sicily or, you know, Rome or whatever. And the trains, by the way, it doesn't have to be a plane, the trains are amazing. And Americans have no idea what train travel could be like. You know, if you're in Basel, Switzerland, and you want to go up north to Hamburg, Germany, you get on a second-class, super-fast train, and you're there. And they hand out chocolate. It's really good. <laughs> yes. I'm, I'm, I'm in favor of anyone who hands out chocolate. Swiss Air, by the way, 
love flying Swiss Air. They hand out really big pieces of chocolate just for no reason, just because you're on their plane. Thank you, Swiss Air. And if you want to uh, become a sponsor, uh, or if you anyone out there just wants to send chocolate or talk to me about chocolate, www.isthatreallylegal.com. There's a place you can't send me chocolate on the internet, but you can send me a message and that would be great. Anyway, sorry, Liz. Strong support for both sending chocolate and for Europe. I think that I was very fortunate to be able to have that experience. And I think also fortunate to have a U.S. passport that allows very easy travel like that. Um, and so was able to take advantage of that at a young age, which I definitely um, do not take for granted. And then on the chocolate side, um, Everyone who knows me well knows that my love languages are words of affection and salted chocolate. So whenever I need to, anyone shows appreciation, I get just um, loads of salted chocolate and it is pretty much the best thing ever. So uh, I went, so during the two years of COVID, and I know it's technically not over, but for pretty much we're behaving like it's over and, you know, people have gone back to work and what have you. Um, but uh, also during the four years uh, when a certain gentleman was president, um, gentleman termed loosely, loosely, excuse me, I lived on making Negronis at home and also kept many bars of Lint's 70% dark salted. Um, and then I, I am now, I can't accept lesser chocolates. Like Lint is the bottom for me. Um, there's a place that uh, is throughout Europe, and they even have at least one on Fifth Avenue that we've been to called Laderach, which is a Swiss place in Basel. They have a big store in the middle of town, but they also have one at the train station. Boys and girls, the train stations in Europe are amazing. They have chocolate stores. They have full grocery stores. The, the train stations are fantastic in Europe. Americans... Even, by the way, subways, you know, the metro in Paris, you could probably eat off the floor there. And they have places that you can buy things, little, you know, vending machines that are not destroyed or graffitied. All right. I'm sorry. I'm very pro-Europe these days. I don't. Why would that be? All right. But back to this. So you have chocolate, right? So what's your, like, if you, if you were having because this, if you're like me, it could go either way. It could either be, oh, something great happened. Let's celebrate. I'm going to get some great chocolate. Or this was the hardest day in a long time. I'm going to go get some chocolate. So what is your, what do you tend to go for? I, I mean, I don't discriminate. I really love all forms of salted chocolate. So I really, I cast a wide net. It's all welcome in my home. Um, recently, I have been on a real, um, chocolate and mint cookie dough um, nuts ice cream situation. So there's a very, very good ice cream shop about two blocks from my house um, called Brooklyn Cream. And I was telling my friend, my birthday is in two days. And I was telling her, can we go get ice cream? And she said, is it still ice cream weather? I said, it's always ice cream weather. Um, and so I think that that's really, I just, why would you not? So that's where my current um, cravings lie. I'm, I don't want to disparage your friends. And I'm sure your friend's a lovely person, but they clearly have a blind spot. They, there's no such thing as ice cream weather. There's just ice cream. And ice cream and alcohol are the things that helped me gain my uh, pandemic slash uh, politics weight. The night uh, in November in 2016, when we thought we were going to win and then suddenly it didn't turn out that way. The first thing I did was I went to, uh, we have a bodega. I mean, uh, we've got bodegas everywhere. It's New York and even my neighborhood in Brooklyn is no exception. There's a place and uh, my wife's favorite is Haagen-Dazs Swiss chocolate almond, whatever. And I'm a Ben and Jerry's person and it just depends. And I think I got chocolate therapy, which seemed appropriate in that moment. But I've been known to have fish food or the late night, you know, it, it's got chocolate or sadly could be named for me, chubby hubby, which has peanut butter, but there's chocolate covered pretzels. Now, 
Salty and chocolate work great together, in my opinion. So I've often been a chocolate-covered pretzel person. I do want to just let you know, because you're a fellow Brooklynite, Industry City, have you been there? There is a French chocolate company there uh, called Lily, I think, or Lilique. They, they, they make the chocolate there. Um, and I have really fallen in love with the dark chocolate-covered graham crackers. Well, now I know what I'm doing after this. Thanks for that. <laughs> By the way, you're very fit. Um, so I don't think you eat that much chocolate or you do, you seem like a person who runs or does athletic stuff. Is that accurate? Yeah, I ran a marathon last year and this year I am just working back up to some regular exercise routine. So I used to be more fit. I mean, well, I'm 61. I'm not asking you your age. Um, but after 9-11, I had this idea that I would run the marathon and raise money for a couple of people that I lost that day. And um, I started working, I mean, I worked out, I was quasi fit for a guy who sat behind a desk a lot. And at one, I was working with a trainer and I got to my eight mile run. This is, it was, by the way, I was living in the suburbs of Boston at the time. So to go running, I had to put on so much clothing, including something called a gaiter. I think like a, a mm -hmm. special scarf, a face covering a hat. Like I, I looked like a clothing factory out for a run. And when I came back after running eight miles in that, I did the math and I realized I hadn't done a third of a marathon. And I was like, Oh, this, this, I can't do this. And a good friend of mine said, you're, you're funny, you're a performer, you're a writer. Why don't you do a one man show and raise the money that way? She's like, she was a romance novelist. And she said, I'm not going to learn hockey to join a hockey tournament to raise money. That's what you're doing. <laughs> that's amazing. And that's she was amazing. dead on. So that's why. So uh, anyway, back to, look, I can talk about chocolate some more. But I, so you do the uh, London School of Economics. You finish with, I assume it was a degree or a certificate or what happens when it you was, it was part of my Georgetown. Oh, so oh. Was, yeah, it was combined with Georgetown. Fantastic. So what happens then? Um, I get I spent a year or two in DC, um, very quickly got tired of the politics side of things, um, moved to New York, which I thought was just the epicenter of all things creative and wonderful. It is. And, and it is, and I still believe that. Um, and lived there, have lived there really off and on ever since. Um started doing a little bit um, PR. <laughs> that was my introduction to New York. Uh, very quickly wanted my soul back and transitioned to nonprofit work. So I have been running communications for social impact nonprofits. Well, I want to I want to stop for a second because yeah. when you said you wanted your soul back. So PR means a lot of things to a lot of people. Yeah. And clearly it was not a great experience for you. I'm not asking you to name names or anything, but what was it about PR that didn't work for you? So I think, so in particular, I was at a boutique agency that specialized in luxury. So I was pitching incredible luxury experiences. I was opening um, fancy steakhouses. I was doing selling $1,000 martinis for charity. It was really a scene in 2008 in New York, right, before the big crash. Um, and it was, it gave me access to some worlds. There's a whole other set of stories around that. Um, it was a great introduction to the city, uh, but it did not fill my sense of purpose and meaning, let's put it that way. Um, and I transitioned quite happily to more social impact work. Well, you know, it's so interesting. And, and I know a little bit about you because of what's on your resume there. And we're going to get to that. But um, there are two worlds that almost never cross. And I've seen that more as an older gentleman how do I put this? So, you know, I, I was an entertainer and I'd met some very high profile entertainers and they live in a very different world than we live. And they could be part of that high end luxury, whatever. Uh, uh, 
they, these are people that if they choose to, they can live a, they can live like a parallel universe from us. Universe. That they never have to see someone they don't want to see. They don't have to have interactions that they would not want to have. Now, some, to their credit, are like, no, I, I'm an actor, and I think that to be a genuine actor, just as an example, or a genuine writer, I need to be around people who live so I can draw that, make that part of my instrument, my creativity. I need to know what it's like to be stuck on the subway you know, for an hour. Maybe not what they want to do, and that's kind of a bigger thing, but just like occasionally you will see famous people on the subway just because it is the fastest way to get around. And they also, they don't really give a crap about living in that high end world. You know, like I, I had a chance to chat with Christina Bransky one time. We were on the subway together. Like, you know, she's a famous actress if people don't know, but there's a lot of people who will never go on the subway. They don't have to, they don't want to fine. And that's just a small, small uh, data point of how they are in different worlds than we are. Um, I went to a famous luxury brand to buy a watch for myself uh, because when my mom passed, I decided that's one of the things she wanted to give me with the inheritance. So I go in there and I thought I've bought other sort of expensive watches before. Um, you go in, you say, this is the one I want. Oh, that's very nice. And then they wrap it up and you go. No, it was like going to a bank. This is a very famous jewelry store with a French name. I'll just see what that. And you go sit at a table and they bring you, now here's why I fell in love. They bring you chocolate with little chocolates with the name of the company on them. Fresh water. How are you? Why are you here? What are you interested in? I don't go to a counter. The woman who's waiting on us leaves us, comes back with a tray of watches. I know you wanted this one, but I brought these to make sure that you are happy with your selection, that you tried all these different ones. And by the way, she was not trying to upsell me to the most expensive. They, she showed me a lot of quote unquote less expensive versions of the watch. And that is an experience that most of us will never have. Nor, by the way, did I, it was kind of cool, but I like at one point I'm starting to get uncomfortable. Like it was too much attention on me and I love attention, but this was crazy. So getting back to you, I could see that you might interact with certain people who've grown to have an expectation of that kind of service, of that kind of attention. You are nodding so knowingly. Um, and that sometimes we feel like these people are a little out of touch with the way the rest of us live. One story, a, a small story of the out of touch. Please. Opening, um, we were opening a steakhouse, which shall remain nameless. And in the opening weeks, you have um, kind of comp dinners for the who's who to come. And is this very, very downtown? By the way, there are several. Um, okay. So, because yeah. I went to an event. <laughs> I, all right, uh, that's fine. Go ahead. I, I got invited. It's not because I'm. I knew a, I'm one of those guys who always knows someone, and we've got three extra. Do you want to go? Okay. Anyway, please. But we were kicking off with some charity promotion. We had um, we had these martinis that were going to raise money for charity, and they came with a piece of jewelry. And so our job was to wear little black dresses and heels, and to you know get people to buy these thousand dollar martinis. Um, and you know it's it's for the kids, right? Quote unquote. Martinis for the kids, by the way, <laughs> means something different there than like when. Parents are like, oh, enough with the I need a martini because of the kids. Yes. Please. So I was, um, you know, doing the rounds. Can we, you know, tell you about our promotion, et cetera? And went up to one gentleman who was having his steak lunch and martini at the bar, you know, on a random Wednesday and said, you know, martini, it's a thousand dollars. We have a bracelet, we have a ring. What would you like? And he was kind of like, oh, what do you think? I'll take one for my wife and one for my girlfriend. And we were like, um, sure. So maybe the ring for your wife and the bracelet for your girlfriend. 
And he just takes both, signs the $2,000 check and is like, yep, thanks. Thanks for this. And I thought, I am done. This is, we are done with this life. This is not what I was meant to be doing. Thank you very much. Um, yeah, I, I have to admit, I am, and as you get to know me, you'll probably guess this is accurate. I'm never at a loss for words. I would have been, and kind of am now. I, my only thought is, maybe he was a comedian and he was telling a joke, but you would pick that up. You're pretty sophisticated. Uh, that is shock. I am, I am literally shocked. That was, that was the kind of world, um, scene at that time. Wow. So you end up saying, thanks. No, thanks. I'm not going to say where it was. Uh, well, I don't know if it's on the list here anyway, but um, I know you've done a lot in New York, but you did spend some time also in Africa. Mm -hmm. Is that something you want to talk about? I'd love to hear about it. Sure. So for the last five years, um, so I did about 10 years in an education profit and nonprofit in New York, um, and then was recruited to um, a nonprofit in East Africa. Based Ooh, I'm going to stop. I'm sorry. Let's let's keep it chronological because I didn't realize the education stuff, the nonprofit. You may or may not remember my wife is a retired educator. My parents were both uh, teachers. I love anything to do with education. And so what what how did you get into that and what was it? Um dumb luck resume I sent on the internet um and stumbled into a nonprofit, wonderful nonprofit that I'm still involved with called TNTP, used to be called the New Teacher Project, um, and is best known in New York for the teaching fellows programs. You may have seen the subway ads. Um, I, I know tons of people who participated yeah. in yes. it, it has so for people who don't know, we know people who wouldn't necessarily become teachers use this as an entry point, and many of them have become fantastic teachers. That's right. Anyway. Yes. So I worked um, at TNTP um, leading their communications for the better part of a decade um, and working with different public school systems to recruit teachers or really change the narrative about how teachers should be treated, what we could expect from students and how to really improve the quality of public education. Um, and then I was ready for a change, was ready to go international um, and was recruited to um, a nonprofit called One Acre Fund, where I'm still there today um, that serves family farms in eastern and southern Africa um, and really helps farmers grow more food and earn more money. So and that's where the big money is for you right now. Sorry, <laughs> yeah. I couldn't help myself. It's that's where that's I'm there for uh, the glamour and the paycheck. Yes. <laughs> no, it's a wonderful organization and it's really, really interesting work because it's very different to communicate um, across different countries, across different cultural contexts, and across different languages. And things that I write in English could be translated to French and then to Kurundi. Um, things that I write kind of sitting in Nairobi were then used in very rural areas. And the translation, both kind of culturally and then actual language translation, um, to make sure that the message <laughs> remained somewhat consistent, sometimes with real mistranslations um, was a really just interesting creative challenge. And I really believe um, in the work. And shout out to TNTP. We are in the New York Times today, Nicholas Kristoff's uh, Charity of the Year, if anyone is interested. And one acre fun. So. Uh, well, congratulations. Um, I Look, I, I didn't expect to get political with you, but everything is political ultimately, especially now. And I just want to point out to people, and if you want to have a response to this, it was only very recently that a guy named Mike Pompeo, who was the head of the CIA under Trump and the Secretary of State, meaning the chief officer in implementing the uh, foreign policy of the United States under ex-president, ex-president voted out soundly, uh, Trump. Um, he came out, he's clearly going to be running because he's throwing grenades in the press. And he said the most dangerous person in the world right now is the head of the teachers union and he named her. And uh, having studied a lot about American foreign policy myself, albeit some time ago, 
uh, and staying active. I can think of about literally a hundred people off the top of my head who are far more dangerous in the world. Uh, and uh, it was to me shocking, saddening, but then ultimately not that shocking to pick the head of the teachers union, um, a woman who is a strong advocate for teachers, um, many teachers who are so important to me in my life, my parents, my wife, dear friends, people I've never met, um, and of course my own teachers. Um, and uh, the, the, the battle lines, and I use that term uh, purposely, seem to be getting drawn about public education and there seems to be, no, let's just be honest, there is a concerted effort uh, from right-wing politicians to demonize public education in a way that I think I understand why, which saddens me, but I wonder if you uh, have had to deal with this as part of your mission, if you have thoughts on this, if there's anything you can talk about that would let people feel a little better about what might be happening, anything, throw us a bone. Well, I think that that kind of rhetoric is just inherently unhelpful um, because I think that when you are working in public schools, all parents want the best for their kids, right? And all children deserve um a public education system that upholds the promise, which is you go in, you work hard, you are able to achieve your goals for yourself and your family. And that really should be a fairly apolitical goal that we can all agree on. There's questions on the tactics, there's valid questions on the how, but I think I was just working on um, a project this morning that shows that COVID has made the teacher's jobs from hard to impossible. Right. And there there's a survey of teachers that I was looking at this morning that says 77 or 75 percent of them um, four years ago said that the stress of the job was worth it. And today, only 44 percent do. And so teachers, kids are struggling. Teachers are struggling to support them. And it really doesn't help anything to demonize the teachers. I think we need to say what support do they need to really help kids catch up after a very disruptive time. And one of the things that I'm really excited to look at next year is I'll be working on um, a research project with TNTP to actually look at um, high-performing public schools, the ones uh, across the country that for the last 10 years have really been changing the game for kids, where kids come in behind, at least a year behind, and catch up within three years. And the question we will be asking is, what's working? And I think we spend so much time in all of these social issues throwing stones in a way that, you know, echoes in the Twitter sphere and scores political points and does nothing actually for kids on the ground. And being able to go into schools and look and say, okay, there's all kinds of different schools suited to all different kinds of kids. Um, but what do they share as a common thread that we can learn from, draw from, amplify and support across the country? I think that's the question we should be spending more energy focusing on um, and amplifying rather than dragging people down. I love it. I have a friend who's a principal in the Bronx. Her school uh, is full of what we call English language learners. They're all immigrant kids. And the model for teaching is they help teach each other. Um, and it is a real teamwork-based school. She started the school not that many years ago and has made it into one of the top performing schools in the Bronx in the city. And um, I think tremendous things are possible. I also think that those kind of, that rhetoric is not about education at all. That rhetoric is about something else. That rhetoric is about otherizing people. Um, and it, I wish I could just ignore it. The problem is that I feel the lessons of history make me feel like we can't ignore certain things. I'm not, uh, I just don't know what the answer is, by the way. It's like, this is not the Eric Rubin has the answer podcast. Um, I wish that was accurate. No one would tune into that anyway. Um, but I just, I wanted to hear from an expert your thoughts. And I really appreciate that. And I know you probably have a lot more to say and we have a limited amount of time. Um, is there a way, by the way, that people can follow some of the things you do? Or was there anything you can encourage people to look for? That would be great. 
In terms of education or just in terms of my art generally? Well, oh, that's good because we can transition to the art. Why don't we talk about the education first and we're going to get into your art. Um, I don't have anything off the top of my mind on education right now, but I can certainly think about it and send you afterwards. That would be great. And also people should just read about TNTP. It's an excellent organization. Um, it's TNTP. Um, let's talk about art and your art. Um, what is your art? What are you up to? Sure. Um, so I'm a writer and photographer, as I think we've covered. I think we've covered the writing, less the photography. We've alluded to it. Um, but how you and I started talking was um, about my camera, and I write a photo essay on Substack called A True Life Built. And it's really about starting over, building a more authentic life. And during COVID, I had a major life transition. So I left behind a marriage, a home I had just built, a job I loved my whole life in Kenya. Um, and I, it, my old life wasn't bad, but it just, it felt increasingly kind of out of alignment with the way I wanted to live. And so there was a moment of choice when COVID closed the borders in Kenya and I had 48 hours to decide, all right, pick a country, pick a lane. The State Department said, come home or kind of forever hold your peace. Um, and I left overnight with a single carry-on um, and kind of found the courage to start again. And I think that we don't, as a society, very often talk about lives that aren't linear um, and some of the, the growth and the pain and the beauty and kind of the messiness that comes with making a big change. And so I have been documenting my process of this, um, both through photos and through words um, on this new Substack. Um, and it's been, it's something new this year, but it's been such a source of joy. And it's really been satisfying to put down some of these thoughts um, and share them out more widely um, where people can read them. I love that. There's two things I, I wanted to say because one popped back into my head. You talked about writing simply and I wanted people to understand that doesn't mean uh, not well. Being able to write simply and clearly is so difficult for most people. It's a tremendous gift. And it's why editing is so important because so many people can't write simply and they need someone to assist them. So to be able to do that is a tremendous gift and talent. Okay, put that aside. Um, I have had the experience of major shifts in my life. And I find that when it, when it has worked best or made the most sense ultimately in the moment for me, it was, it was about trusting an inner voice um, that sometimes didn't even feel like my own voice. Um, and I just was like, I have to do this. And I have lived in several cities myself and none in Africa. Uh, but let's just say I've, I've ended a few relationships in my life uh, until I ultimately got to, to uh, be married to Holly, which was part of a, a leap of faith that was fantastic but it was there were so many considerations and why is this going to be hard and, and then it's just like when you take the step when you make the move um uh, there's some Goethe quote about you know making a decision and there's power in it and then suddenly the world i am botching the quote by the way so this is not the quote but the circumstances will coalesce behind you and it will turn out to be um, less difficult, less dramatic than you anticipated. And um, the skills and talents that you either have will show up or you will develop them in the process of creating this new reality. Um, yeah. And it is, it is transformative in the truest sense of the word, not like uh, a Mercedes Benz transforms your life, which I think was one of their taglines. But truly, it, it doesn't take time always. It just a shift happens. And that shift then, much like a super saturated solution, I don't know where that's coming from, but it's a physics, chemistry sort of thing, suddenly everything crystallizes. And so was that 
I mean, sometimes you need the push and you didn't realize that you really needed to leave the situation. And then ultimately, when the State Department uh, supported you in that decision, when you're landing in New York or wherever you landed, you're like, oh, yeah, this is it's not necessarily comfortable, but it does feel right. Is that was that your experience? I don't want to put words in your mouth. No, definitely. And I think the phrase that comes to mind is the leap in the net will appear. Um, I think that, first of all, I landed... I landed in my parents' front driveway um, because my apartment in New York was... um, at the time with tenants and I went was in a little town in rural North Carolina and I was quarantining in their RV um, when I was you know flying home so I was sitting suddenly you know overnight my life has imploded I am sitting in an RV in my parents front driveway on my own kind of going what just happened but I, I quickly realized after the quarantine I was like this is great it was a very nice RV and it was basically like a New York studio and I stayed there the whole time even though I could have moved into the guest room. So I lived in the RV for four months. Very fond um, memories of the RV. I'm going down to my parents for Christmas and they asked if I was um, nostalgic for the genuine 2020 experience. They could put the RV back in the front driveway and I was like, no guys, I'm good. Um, But I think to your point about the larger shift, I think the shift had been a long time coming and then it crystallized, right? And all of a sudden you kind of know what you have to do, even though rationally it hasn't fully sunk in and it took months to sink in. But instinctually I said, all right, it's time to get on a plane. And I think I had never been through that level of upheaval before. I had made it till 40 without kind of any major life crisis, right? This, you know, there are times when things were hard or people were sick, bad things had happened. But in, in that first week of March 2020, this whole life that I had spent my entire adulthood building kind of crumbled within a matter of weeks. And I think that I, like many people during COVID, had no choice but to just sit there in the rubble and think about, okay, what happens next? And I think that in those times when everything falls apart, you can either try to like patch it back together in the way that it was or say, you know what, it's not going to go back to the way it was. So I'm going to put the pieces on the board in a new way. I'm going to start playing a new game. And Art for me in this time really became essential um, because the way I walked with, like, coped with everything, I just walked and walked and walked, and I um, couldn't really express yet what was what I was feeling. But I found the the Yashica at a flea market um, in New York in kind of the winter of 2020, and it delighted me because I had never owned um, a medium format camera. I'd never owned an old film camera and I kind of bought it on a whim. And it became my way during that dark time of what was going on to basically pour out my emotions on film. It was something instinctive for me. It was something, it was a way to process and gain a little bit of distance from what was going on because I could look back on my photos and say, ah, that's what I was feeling. And it gave me a little bit of a remove to start to process it. And I did that for about a year, just taking photos just because I needed to take photos. I needed to process and art was essential. Um, And slowly as, you know, some of the drama faded and things began to settle, um, I began to feel like, okay, there's more to the story behind each photo. I would like to have more space for that. I would like to give that a little bit of space to breathe. And that's when I started writing and then writing publicly um, and now publish kind of weekly photo essays, which I think of as a living journal of this process of transformation in both words and images. That's outstanding. You know, I can tell you, I had a... um... I had a time where I went from owning a nice home in suburban Boston to living in a friend's attic in Yonkers. And depending on how I was feeling in myself, the attic was either, oh my God, I went from being this person, having these possessions and this whatever, to living in an attic. Or it became an exciting artist's garret kind of experience. Um... And I, I really had the experience of being more in charge, having my emotional center really understanding how that can dictate how I live my life. 
um, that, that was part of it. Also, I just thought of how uh, I would love to see your work at Photoville. Are you familiar with Photoville? Yeah, definitely. Um, so for people that don't know, um, in Brooklyn, there's this thing called Photoville. It used to be pre-pandemic. Um, it, it's a photo exhibit of lots of different kinds of photography. And they used to have it in these stacked up shipping containers with stairs and you would go into them and they were like this sort of portable gallery that was right under the Brooklyn Bridge uh, in Dumbo. And then when the pandemic happened, they printed out the exhibits on these giant canvases that got stretched on the sort of handrail areas of Brooklyn Bridge Park, which is my backyard in essence. And during the pandemic, the way that my wife and I kept us from losing our minds is every day we'd get up and we'd walk through Brooklyn Bridge Park. We'd go to the place where you and I met for the first time, have a coffee, something to eat, come back. That's a good five mile walk for us. It's, you know, uh, some of it without a mask at the time was good. <laughs> Anytime someone got close, put your mask on. Uh, but in any event, um, people should check out Photoville. And it may be over for the season already. It tends to be a fall thing. Have you ever done that? And is that something that interests you? Um, yes, I I know a lot of friends, photographer friends, who have their work in Photoville on a regular basis. Oh, um, cool. I think of it, it's interesting. I haven't actually thought of my own work as being um, something that would merit it because I think of it as very Nat Geo and very um, high-end photojournalism. And what I do is much quieter and um, much more introspective, but I think it's a good reflection question for me as to <laughs> whether- I wanna disabuse you of that notion because <laughs> one, of, one of my favorite things about that I saw in Photoville recently was some photographer who has a gerbil or a hamster. And I saw that one and, and all the little scenes. <laughs> Yes. I, I wish I remembered the name because they are like hysterical, very New York scenes where like this hamster goes out on a blind date and gets ghosted and he's just like sitting at a counter and he's just got a hamster face. He's not, there's nothing photoshopped. They sit him at a cute little counter that they've made for him, but you can take your emotional angst and project it onto the hamster. Then also the hamster's like on some kind of exercise equipment that looks like human exercise equipment. He's like, I got to get back out there and I'm going to drop this weight or whatever. And it's just hysterical. Right. Um, and really like, what was that? I do remember that. <laughs> By the way, I remember that more than I remember some of the intense, like, you know, there's, and not to belittle this, because there's a lot of it and it's good and it's, but you know, here's an African uh, village where something terrible happened and they've got lots of photographs of different people there making their way. And that's great, but like, it didn't stay with me, and maybe this is more about me than about the work, but the hamster. And there's a series of books starring this hamster. And for the life of me, I can't remember. You're laughing, and you know that was like, that's a million-dollar idea. Even well, though, you know. Right. Now now I'm not only going to go buy salted chocolate, I'm going to go Google books on hamsters. So this has been a very productive session. I'm so glad that I could get that to happen <laughs> for you. We're, we're going to wrap it up because we've been together. Time flies when I have someone as interesting as you on. And I'm going to say this. You may kind of, I hope that we get to talk another time, not just, just here. You know, uh, you obviously met my wife. We, you know, grab a, some, a meal or a drink or wander into each other here in Brooklyn. That would be great. Is there anything that you wanted to talk about or thought, I'm going to definitely say this on the podcast that we didn't get to talk about? No, I enjoyed the conversation and um, I am still kind of learning about how to speak about my art and myself as an artist and a writer. And so I appreciated this opportunity to do that. It was good practice for me as well as I um, kind of fully step into that identity. So I've really appreciated the conversation and the questions. And I'm so glad that you admired my camera at a French cafe. Thank you, and I'm so glad that you weren't terrified of me and that you were really friendly. I appreciate that. So, you know, Liz McCrocklin, I'm so glad you came on Is That Really Legal with Eric Rubin. It was just a joy to have you. Thanks for having me. 
wasn't it wonderful meeting Liz? She's just one of those people uh, that if you're lucky, you get a chance to meet them. Uh, of course, here in Brooklyn, I feel like we have so many amazing people. But my guess is wherever you are, there's lots of amazing people too. And we really have to reach out to each other now more than ever to uh, let each other know we're not alone and that there is a lot of amazing people around all of us. So maybe that's something you could do until we meet next time. Um, remember to like this podcast in some way. Uh, you know, uh, share it, rate it, tell your friends. If you have questions, go to www.isthatreallylegal.com. There's a place to ask me questions and interact with me. Otherwise, that's it for now. We'll keep coming at you. Uh, stay engaged, stay active, stay well, take care of yourselves and the people around you. And we'll see you next time. Bye-bye.